Ready? Born ready. Welcome back to another episode of your favorite political podcast, Where the Party At? I'm your host, Saba Long. Let's dive right in, shall we? I know I accidentally took last week off. It was an accident, but we're back now and we're in the studio. Um, Okay, so I know y'all heard about this. Buckhead City Hood is dead for now. So last year, the Buckhead City Hood bill did not even make it out of committee. And that's because the lieutenant governor at the time, Jeff Duncan, made clear that he was opposed to the bill. This year, the bill did make it out of committee, but it did not pass the Senate. And why did it fail? Keith? It was President Kemp. (laughs) Can't tell you. The governor's lead lawyer issued an 11-point memo, and he outlined key issues with the legislation and the general fight for Buckhead cityhood. We've talked about some of those things already, um, particularly the fact that Buckhead cityhood, they are trying to do this at the expense of the city of Atlanta. Bill White, who is the person, the grifter, who has been leading the Buckhead cityhood movement, He said this after the vote failed, and I quote, we would like to thank the legislators who voted to support our vote on Buckhead City. We especially thank Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones for his leadership and for getting us this far today. Now, if you listened to the last episode, we talked about Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones and his, uh, Black History Month event and the fact that all these black leaders were supporting Burt Jones. And at the same time, the only reason why Buckhead Cityhood got as far as it did is because of Burt Jones. And the reason that it failed is because of Kemp. Interesting. Another thing that has been happening for about a week or so, but it's been, well, it's been going on for much longer than that, but There were a week-long activities around Cop City. Uh, The folks who were behind the Stop Cop City movement had um, literally, I think, like 10 days of events planned. They had a concert. They've had prayer vigils, like all types of things. So right before the big week started, so on that weekend, last weekend, a group uh, broke away from the concert and they went and set fire to construction equipment, those bulldozer type stuff. Um, and so they, they literally left the, left the, um, place. They changed clothes to put on like dark colored clothing. They allegedly threw bricks and fireworks at the police. So there's some video footage of, you see the police trying to close the gate and their fireworks being thrown in their direction. And then after they've set everything on fire, 
they change clothes and go back to the concert. So cops swarm the concert. The people at the concert said that it was hard to, you wouldn't know who was necessarily part of the initial, you know, of uh, throwing the stuff at, at the police officers. Didn't know like, what kind of concert it was. Yeah, it was, it's some like indie artist that, is really popular in certain circles. Mm, okay. But it was someone relatively well known. Yeah, okay. Um, and it was a peaceful concert. Like there was nothing nefarious. Like, going there was nothing on. on stage that said, Hey, go. No, yeah, none okay. of that. No. The only thing was stop cop city, but everything was peaceful. Okay. So it just seemed like this was playing flat flash mob style. Yeah. So the police, their take is Either this was intentional and they're using the cover of a peaceful event to go break away and do this kind of thing. Or these were like true agitators, you know, and the peaceful folks had no idea that this was going to happen. I mean, you know, they're cops. So you got to do your job. Investigate. Yeah, they're <laughs> they're know, investigating. Just, yeah. So they arrested... 23 people they actually initially arrested more they detained around 30 something people they arrested 23 people everyone was denied bond except for one person that was a legal observer and he was released on a five thousand dollar bond what's interesting is the narrative around this has been that all the people arrested because there was an arrest a couple months ago as well all the people arrested are outside agitators. These are people who don't live in Atlanta. That's the that's what the police are saying. But they detained an additional 10 or so people beyond the 23. And the folks they detained but chose not to arrest were from Atlanta. And, there's, and so what the activists are saying is that the police are intentionally not arresting and booking the Atlanta people so that they can continue the narrative that the only people being arrested are people outside of Atlanta. So interest, I mean, it's, it's, it's getting heavy. Yeah, it's, it's definitely getting heavy. Reverend Kiana Jones was one of the many speakers at the city council meeting on last Monday. She is part of a faith coalition to stop cop city. And she's a resident of the area. Take a listen to what she said at the city council meeting. Elected you. The people came out and spoke clearly. And let me go to the Bible one more again and say that we are here as clergy to cry loud and spare not. We are opening our mouths and crying with a loud voice to say that we don't want Cop City. I live in East Atlanta. I don't want Cop City. I got five black children. I don't want Cop City. I like breathing clean air. I don't want Cop City. I want to drink clean water. I don't want Cop City. I don't want Black Hawk, black hawk helicopters landing around the corner from my house. I don't want Cop City. I don't. My neighbors don't. My granny don't. She's been in her house almost 50 years and you suckers will never get it through gentrification because we knew what to do. And Mary Norwood and the people of Buckhead, this will not be your trade-off. 
When are you going to stop dealing with the white supremacist infrastructure and dealing with the so-called black elites in Atlanta in your silent agreement that as long as they go along with the white establishment, they gonna keep them other N-words over there in control. We know that in the 20 to 30 year cycle of gentrification, by the time black people can move back into my neighborhood the way we used to be, it'll be 20 or 30 years from now. And Cop City was your answer to make sure that our black asses stay right over there and don't go to Buckhead. But we telling you right now, as sure as Peachtree runs into Buckhead, this is our land. And we ain't going to stop fighting. We are not going to stop standing. Get used to these voices. Get used to these faces. Get used to being called out. And if you feel like you in church, then maybe you ought to say, ouch, because I know I'm standing up here preaching to somebody. And if you harden your heart, be reminded reminded of the story of another Pharaoh who had a very hard heart, who would not free the people of God, who would not lead them to their land. You know what happened in that story. Don't think that you will not suffer the same fate. Don't think that the infrastructure of this so-called black Mecca will not come toppling over because it will. And how long are you going to treat us like we dumb as dirt? We're not. We are not. We know more than you think we know. And the fact that you chose to ignore, ignore a legal court order to stop work and allowed greedy corporations to go ahead displacing people, but taking up my green space. Don't you know that the environment has been used to oppress and suppress black people and indigenous people for ages? And we see this. So we're talking about environmental justice. We're talking about economic justice because the least y'all could have done was mandate that those contractors who work on that job, that they hire at least 33% of community members. But you're not doing that. So you don't care about the air we breathe. You don't care about the water we drink. You don't care if we can make a living wage. You don't want to sustain that community. You want to displace us so that those who are giving you kickbacks can have something that they said we built over here and we got them Negroes out. Why are you okay with that? Because I know somebody who's on this council had a father who stood to make sure that Negroes could stand and be wherever they wanted to be. So at that point, she's referring to Michael Julian Bond, who's a post one at large council member. He is the son of civil rights leader Julian Bond. And let's keep listening to the final part of her remarks. I'm saying all of it. Because at the end of the day, there are a lot of self-righteous people sitting in seats of so-called authority. And you are deluded to think that you have power. We have the power. And we gave you authority because we trusted you. My God. And shame on you, Dustin Hillis. I don't give a damn if you don't look at me one time. Because you know, you know what you have done. And you know you ain't worth the dirt up under your feet. But I tell you what, in the words of my granny, because I ain't got to lean on the Bible. Mary Kate Thomas is a strong woman and taught me to fight. In the words of my granny, you may not pay what you owe, but you will reap what you sow. Woo. Damn. Uh, 
who she's talking about there, she's she calls out Dustin Hillis. He is the District 9 council member, and he is chair of the Public Safety Committee on the City Council. So that was just one of the comments uh, that city council members listened to last Monday. There, there was also people from the, I believe I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but I'll try the Waluni tribe. So these are people who were indigenous to the area where the public safety training center was going to be. So they were originally there. These are native Americans who were there originally. Um, I haven't, found the video yet but someone told me that there is a video of this tribe trying to give Andre Mayor Andre Dickens a piece of paper that is they called an eviction notice asking the city to leave that property um and apparently he, he was out at some event and they uh tried to give it to him at that time so th that's just one day of activity and, and things that happen around cop city. There are three things that I want to highlight for folks to just think about here. There are two factions. One is the people who are peacefully protesting. The other are folks who are attacking allegedly the police. I don't think it's fair to conflate the two. Although I will say both groups and the overall cop stop, cop stop cop city movement have have embraced a, a level of solidarity that you don't see often and so even the folks who are vandalizing equipment they are not being called out by the people who are peacefully protesting and they're saying we are all in this together our tactics might not be the same but we're all in this together because we all have an end goal to stop this from happening uh, the other is, and I mentioned this when I was on WABE last week, um, Atlanta is a democratic city. It appears to me that the city leadership is not understanding what's at stake here. I think they originally thought, okay, some people are don't like that we're doing this. Well, we're going to do what we generally do, and there's not going to be you know, any really big blowback. And what's happening is that this is now a national story. It's an international story. And now it's become a partisan story. So you've got Fox News, which I'd mentioned before, showing a video of one cop car on fire. And they're making out this narrative that the city of Atlanta is on fire and all everything has gone to hell. You have Governor Kemp and the Attorney General at, uh, of Georgia saying things like this. And I quote, we will not rest until those who use violence and intimidation for an extremist and are brought to full justice. I think it's only a matter of time before you see Trump and DeSantis and other national figures use this as a way to push their own political agenda and narrative. And then I think you're also going to see Republican lawmakers across the country enact stricter, stricter punishments for things like vandalism for things like uh, protests, uh, which leads me to the last point, and that's about these domestic terrorism charges. So the folks so far who have been arrested for this are being charged with domestic terrorism, and that is at the request and doing of the Republican Attorney General. 
The state of Georgia defines domestic terrorism as this, any unlawful felony that attempts to disable or destroy critical infrastructure, a state or government facility with the intent to alter, change, or coerce the policy of the government. That seems to me to be extraordinarily broad. And I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but it just doesn't, doesn't feel right. A number of organizations, including Human Rights Watch, sent a letter to the Attorney General Chris Carr, to the Fulton and DeKalb County District Attorneys, and the letter said this, and I quote, Domestic terrorism charges are stigmatizing anti-protest measures. Labeling protest activities acts of domestic terrorism discredits the broader Defend the Atlanta Force movement and has the potential to dissuade future activists from engaging in confrontational protest tactics. This has the effect of constraining civic space and chilling the exercise of First Amendment rights. Activists concerned that civil disobedience might be prosecuted as domestic terrorism may well make the decision to remain at home. So the charges that could be brought are things like vandalism, destruction of property for being somewhere that they're not supposed to be, right? Trespassing. But a domestic terrorism charge is an elevation of what's happening that I don't think we may not fully understand right now how this could impact other types of protest. Whether it's, you think about what happened in 2020 with Black Lives Matter, um, even things like what happened way back when, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but when the financial industry collapsed, right? And banks collapsed and Occupy Wall Street was created. Those types of movements, you could, to some extent, say that, oh, under under Georgia's version of domestic terrorism, saying that you are against uh, bank collapse and, and protesting in this type of nature, you could be charged as a domestic terrorist. I think that's a real problem. The other thing I think is really interesting, Keith, is I haven't heard a peep from Killer Mike, from T.I., from all these Atlanta rappers who get involved during the election cycle, but don't do anything else beyond that to hold elected leaders accountable. I did find that clip um, from, so I guess it's the tribe that went in on the, um, it was the Atlanta Region Commission meeting. Oh, okay. And they busted in. Yeah. So if, you want to, if you want to hear that. Yeah, sure. I came all the way on the Trail of Tears to deliver this letter to you folks. Um, we want you to know that the contemporary Muscogee people are now making their journey back to our homelands and hereby give notice to Mayor Andrew Dickens, the Atlanta City Council, the Atlanta Police Department, the Atlanta Police Foundation, the DeKalb County Sheriff's Office, and so-called Cop City, that you must immediately vacate Muscogee homelands and cease violence and policing of indigenous and black people in Muscogee lands. We also ask for an independent investigation into the assassination of our relative Tortuguita, and that the charges be dropped against Walani forest defenders. 
According to the history of Muscogee peoples, we originated in so-called Georgia near the Ochizi Creek. Wow. Put the link in the show notes. Yeah. I, I don't... This isn't going away anytime soon. It's really not. And I wonder... You know, I mentioned the partisan part of this. The city of Atlanta is trying to get the DNC convention. Right? That's in 2024. I, I think this could hurt that. Anytime you're unifying people in a protest is going to hurt whatever the establishment is trying right. to do. It's not a black thing. It's not a white thing. It's not an indigenous thing. It's a everybody type of thing. Right. You know, one option is don't build it you use some other facility because there are other law enforcement training centers across the state. So they could do that or they could build it somewhere else um, or they can figure out a way to build it in this location, but maybe change the scope and size of the project. But I think a lot of the folks protesting right now don't want it built period. And I don't know if that's necessarily the right approach because if they need a training center, right? And that's what they're saying. We need a training center. Okay. Give them a training center, but have a community discussion about where it's going to be, who's going to be impacting, you know, all those types of things. And that didn't occur before. Right. Is there a land reason? Like, is there the a city, money reason? The, like, city ha- the city owns that releases that land from DeKalb County. Mm-hmm. They had a public safety training center there years ago. And so their thought was, oh, well, we had it here a long time ago. Let's just, just bring, it back. bring it back. Someone mentioned to me, well, why didn't, if they had needed this facility for so long, why didn't Kasim Reed turn the um, Fort McPherson into, you know, use a portion of that land for the training center? It's like, that's interesting. Um, one of our Atlanta Civic Circle reporters wrote a story about comparing Atlanta's cop city to Chicago's cop city. And the price of Chicago's and the price of Atlanta's was the same. It's about $80 million or so. dollars. But by the time it was built, the Chicago project ended up costing almost $200 million. And so I, it makes me wonder... Assuming, because almost every construction project goes over budget, assuming this goes over budget, who's on the hook? Who has to pay the additional amount? I don't know. I mean, I think I know, but I would like to know for sure. (laughs) I want to mention something that isn't getting a lot of attention and it's going to impact a lot of folks. Uh, Georgia Power. Georgia Power is asking the Public Service Commissioner to help them recoup $2.1 billion in costs by taking money from the natural gas customers. So Georgia Power spokesperson said this, and I quote, Just as Georgians paid higher prices at the gas pump in 2022, Georgia Power also paid more for the natural gas, on average three times more and other fuels we used to generate electricity. And then he says these increases are solely a result of rising energy prices and that Georgia Power will not earn any profit from these additional fuel costs. 
So Georgia Power is asking to add between $17 and $23 per month on the bills of customers who use at least 1,000 kilowatt hours per month. So I had to Google, like, is that a lot? I have no idea. (laughs) So (laughs) the average house uses about 900 kilowatt hours per month. But if you live in an older home or a larger home, that amount would increase. And then it would change on based on like extreme temperatures. So if it's extra hot or extra cold, you could easily be spending or using a thousand kilowatt hours or more per month. Now, what's interesting here is the public service commissioner already approved a rate increase in December. That was for $1.8 billion, raising electricity rates for customers by 12% over three years. Now this would be raising the rates for natural gas customers. Uh, the Public Service Commission is made up of five commissioners. Currently, they are all Republican. Uh, the only person who voted against the, uh, the rate increase in December is Commissioner Lauren, who goes by Bubba, Uh, McDonald. And you might recall last year, there would have been a vote for one of the public service commissioner seats, but it got held up in litigation. And so I think we'll have to wait until 2024 for that seat to be up for election. And there probably will be a couple of others that are up for election. Public service commission is a, is a entity that does not get a lot of media coverage, uh, but it's one that you should certainly pay attention to. Now let's talk a little bit about some national politics. Here's something I thought was kind of interesting. There is a proposal to increase the number of people in Congress. But why would we do that? Congress has like the lowest approval ratings of practically anything. (laughs) So when George Washington spoke at the Constitutional Convention, he backed the idea of 30,000 residents to one congressperson. Obviously, it was a very different time. Weren't that many people in America. But fast forward to now in 2023. Today, each congressperson represents nearly 800,000 residents. It's a big difference from the original 30,000 idea. And the United States is the only major democracy that has not increased federal representation in the past century. So, Why in the world should we do this? Well, listen to Harvard professor Daniel Allen's pitch for more people in Congress. The responsiveness that we need, representatives can't know their constituents in a way that they could in the past. They can't handle constituent services. The volume is overwhelming. There are not changing dynamics as the demography of the country changes. As California grows, for example, it stays with, you know, roughly speaking, the same number of representatives, same for Texas and Florida. So we need the elasticity and flexibility that was always expected to be there. The idea was that Congress would grow with every 10-year census. And the, the country has become so much more complex since 1929 when they locked it in at 435. Uh, you make the case that you could have more committees in the House, for example, becoming expert on more things. I mean, why not have a committee that was about 
nothing but transportation safety, for example, so that when you have a train derailment, uh, there are some experts in the House of Representatives to deal with that. There you go. I mean, the business of our government has increased significantly in the past century. The budget is much bigger. There is that much more money flowing through the system, that much more to pay attention to. One of the design principles they used for the original Constitution was called Republican safety. The idea that your representatives were there to be the safeguard for your liberties, safeguard for securing rights and the like. The truth is, we've got so much business going on these days, it's not clear that Congress can play that job fully of protecting and providing for Republican safety. So yes, an increased Congress would be a better watchdog actually for our liberties. What, what about the Marjorie Taylor Greene problem? Would that kind of voice become louder in a bigger house or be more muted in a bigger house? Well, the great thing about a bigger house is again, that representatives would be closer to their constituents. And what that means is there's actually a chance for local news, local knowledge, local information to start to do a better job again. Right now, we are operating in a democracy with news deserts all over the country. And then the only access that people have to information about their representatives comes through national media. And that produces a really distorting and polarizing effect. So if we could get representatives closer to the people again, there's you know more degrees of connection, greater likelihood that you'll be able to pool healthier knowledge about what's going on and make better decisions. Hmm. There's an effort called Uncap the House that aims to add 150 new legislators to the House of Representatives by 2029. And there are also two bills that have been filed in the House to expand the cap. It's an, it's an interesting idea. There's just so much distrust of elected officials across the board that I'm not convinced that this will go anywhere. I'm not convinced that people will find the house to be more trustworthy because they feel like they have better access to their elected official. Yeah, I agree. But is, is that a real issue? The issue that she said about uh, that they stated about the committees and because it's not enough people yeah the way the committees because i mean 400 people still sounds like a lot of people that you can well, still specialize. yeah 435 representing the entire country i think the other part the other challenge that's not mentioned here is that the house of representatives is elected every two years and that means that they are spending a lot of their time campaigning for dollars and so if you're having to spend so much time fundraising and not, you don't get to use that time to make sure that you're connected to your constituents, that you're introducing and, and really paying attention to legislation, that's a problem. Now, I, I like the idea of, you know, this, the Atlanta City Council, I, I would say a district council member probably represents... I don't know, maybe 50,000 residents or something like that. So I like the idea of having someone at the federal level who also represents about the same amount of people as a local elected official. I think it does, it would make you feel more connected. I don't know if it really addresses trust and the ability to introduce and pass meaningful legislation. Yeah, that's the question. The trust. Like he said, yeah. the trust. Yeah, I don't know. So speaking of Election Watch, 
this was a big one. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan announced that he is not going to run for president in 2024. He's a Republican, and he's worried that too many Republicans in the primary will make it easier for Trump to win the Republican nomination. Uh, Trump spoke at CPAC, which is a conservative conference, um, and he said that 2024 is, quote, the final battle for America. He always speaks in such hyperbole. Um, He also said that if he is indicted, it probably would boost his poll numbers, which I actually agree with. I do think him being indicted will just turn him into even more of a political martyr. Uh, It's kind of fascinating. Um, Another thing that's interesting about this election is that Trump is running again as an outsider. Here's an example of how in the world that is possible. Take a listen to this bit from Steve Bannon. And old man Murdoch, while you're at it, why don't you no more softball interviews to the guys running against him and and no more infomercials, okay? Play it straight. You play it straight. Donald Trump's going to win the primary and Donald Trump's going to win the presidency. Let me leave you with... What Trump is up against, he's not up against DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo. He's up against Ken Griffin and Mitch McConnell and Murdoch, okay? They have deemed if he wins the primary, they're going to work for the Democrats just like they worked for Hillary Clinton. I was there. I can tell you they were in Clinton's camp the entire way. All they are is about money. And the only people can stop them on the face of the earth are you, you, and you. MAGA, MAGA, MAGA. Remember, Murdoch, you've deemed Trump's not going to be president. Well, we've deemed that you're not going to have a network because we're going to fight you every step of the way. (laughs) Murdoch, for those who don't know, is Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox News and a whole bunch of other conservative media. Um. Another person that people are waiting to see what he's going to do is Senator uh, Tim Scott from South Carolina. Uh, Bannon mentioned Mike Pompeo, who is certainly uh, doing everything that you're supposed to do if you're about to run. Uh, And then, of course, Ron DeSantis is on his book tour and he has, uh, I think he made his first stop in Iowa. And then now he's going to do New Hampshire and Nevada over the next couple of weeks. So he's not publicly in but he's doing everything that you're supposed to do if you are indeed running for president. Um, One thing I want to mention, because I think this is a story that isn't getting a lot of attention, and I think people are just perplexed about it, is COVID-19, the origination of COVID-19, if it was a lab leak or not. So did it originate out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology here is the FDA commissioner who worked under the Trump administration. Here's what he said about it. To Matt Pottinger, who served in the Trump administration, who said intelligence needs to be a, a more robust part of pandemic um, protection. And I know you agree with that. Um, you know, There was a piece in the New York Times by David Wallace Wells, an opinion piece called We've Been Talking About the Lab Leak Theory All Wrong. And the argument is that lean into the lab theory and just look at how to prevent lab leaks. He's called. 
for things like a re national registration on research based on risks and benefits, new safety standards, global governance to go with this as well. Why doesn't that exist and why isn't that being created? Yeah, I think it should be. I mean, we're three years into this. There's some recommendations that are on the president's desk. I think we need to start getting serious and looking at what steps need to be put into place. You know, we're still stuck on the debate about whether it was or wasn't a lab leak. I don't think we're going to prove that. I think we should work on the assumption that there's a probability that it was a lab leak and start putting in place the kinds of protections that we need. The congressman talked about gain-of-function research. He made the point that there isn't a real commercial prerogative for doing that kind of research. I agree with him. We ought to look at whether we outlaw that kind of research and certainly if it's going to take place, conduct it in BSL-4 labs, high-security labs under very strict conditions where we know what's going on, and don't outsource it to labs in China. Sometimes the highest-risk experiments get outsourced to the worst labs around the world because they're the ones willing to do those experiments. And so if we're going to do high-risk research because we think it's important from a national security standpoint, and that's the only context in which this would make sense, there really isn't a commercial context in which this would make sense, uh, we need to get better control over it. And to Matt's point, Matt Pottinger's point, we need to get the intelligence agencies engaged in this as a national security, as a part of their national security mission, and look at public health preparedness through a national security lens. I think we're doing that now, but we need to be very explicit about that. And that does mean also surveillance around some of the high-risk activities that can create these kinds of risks. Yeah. And then now, here is the current FBI director talking about the origins of COVID-19. So back then about the investigation to COVID origins. Is the FBI in charge of the investigation of the origins of the coronavirus? Uh, we certainly have a role in looking into the origins of the coronavirus. Now there's this Department of Energy study uh, that says it's likely uh, to have come from a lab leak, although the confidence is low. It cites the FBI. What is the determination by the FBI? So, uh, as you note, Brett, uh, the FBI has for uh, quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Let me step back for a second. You know, the FBI has folks, agents, professionals, analysts, virologists, microbiologists, et cetera, who focus specifically on the dangers of biological threats, which include things like novel viruses like COVID, uh, and the concerns that in the wrong hands, some bad guys, a hostile nation state, a terrorist, a criminal, the threats that those could pose. So here you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government-controlled lab that killed millions of Americans, and that's precisely what that capability uh, was designed for. I should add, that, uh, that our work related to this continues. And there are not a whole lot of details I can share that aren't, aren't classified. I will just make the observation that the Chinese government seems to me has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate uh, the work here, the work that we're doing, the work that our US government and, and close foreign partners are doing. Um, and that's unfortunate for everybody. Hmm. So maybe Trump was right. That's an interesting one. And it's it's also interesting to see how quiet a lot of Democrats are on this. All right. Speaking of, they did have a win on something uh, really big. Democrats did. 
Uh, Eli Lilly, who is the insulin maker, uh, pledged recently that it is going to reduce the price of its insulin. You might recall we mentioned Senator Raphael Warnock has been pushing for $35 insulin. Um, and so Eli Lilly said it's most commonly prescribed insulin. It will sell it at a 70% price cut. So the most affordable one will go from $82.41 to $25 per vial. You know what's crazy? In the 1960s, insulin was advertised at less at less than $1 per vial. <laughs> Just like gas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, the heck? And and the most commonly prescribed insulin that Eli Lilly sells is $160 a vial. That is wild. Um, another interesting thing, um, this is something for families that I don't know if you guys are aware of, so I'm mentioning it. The U.S. Department of Transportation, I'll put a link in the show notes, has announced a new dashboard that will let you know which airlines allow families to sit together without it costing extra. So Biden actually mentioned this during the State of the Union speech. So, so far, Alaska Airlines, American Airlines, and Frontier have all said that they won't charge extra for families who are asking to sit together. Uh, no word yet from Delta, the hometown airline. What you doing, Delta? What's up? Um, but this is just another example. I always try to find examples of how government impacts your day-to-day life in ways that you might not even think of. Uh, and this is a very clear one. So you're trying to book that family vacation. You've got, you know, three kids and a spouse or whatever it might be. Um why should, why in the world are airlines charging you to sit together? That seems ridiculous. Um, so kudos to Biden for helping make that happen. Some labor and union updates. This will go kind of quick. Uh, I just want to mention that the National Labor Review Board, a judge ruled that Starbucks is guilty of, quote, egregious and widespread misconduct, end quote, towards employees who tried to unionize at its Buffalo, New York stores. Uh, take a listen to this. Why do you think unions are contrary to the vision of Starbucks? Okay. Yeah. Let's first examine that unions in America, uh, for the most part, have existed and have succeeded in the past because of companies that did nefarious things on the backs of their people, that they put their people last instead of first. Now let's look at Starbucks. Starbucks employs 450,000 people around the world, 250,000 people in the U.S. in our stores. We provide unprecedented benefits, not because a union told us to, but because the conscience of the company and my own life story is based on trying to build a company that my father, a blue-collar worker, was not given, not afforded those rights. We're not a perfect company, right. but I'm saying this because we didn't have a union or an outside party tell us what to do. We did this because we want to be in service of our people. Now, if a de minimis group of people, which now is about 300 stores, file for a petition to be unionized, they have a right to do so. But we as a company have a right also to say we have a different vision that is better, more dynamic, and we have a history to prove it. Yeah. 
That vision is now being challenged with an alternate one. We find ourselves at the forefront of a new labor movement. Starbucks Workers United says it wants power sharing and accountability. The company is refusing to bargain with us. So that was Howard Schultz, the founder uh, of Starbucks, or the person who actually, he didn't found it. I think he bought it from someone else and then turned it into the Starbucks we know today. Bernie Sanders and the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee um, have asked Schultz to testify in an upcoming hearing on Starbucks compliance with labor laws. Starbucks said, nah, but we'll send our chief public affairs officer instead. But we're not having Schultz do that. Uh, so that's what's going on with Starbucks. Uh, Caterpillar announced that it has reached an agreement with the United Auto Workers Union to keep factories open in Illinois and Pennsylvania. Uh, another interesting one, Congressman Mark Takano has reintroduced a bill for a four-day, 32-hour work week across the country with no pay cut for the worker. The United Kingdom just did a pilot of this, and it was quite successful. Here's a quote from the report. Companies' revenues stayed broadly the same during the six-month trial, but rose 35% on average when compared with a similar period from previous years. Resignations decreased. So I don't think it'll go anywhere, but a four-day, 32-hour work week. What will Americans do with that extra day? <clears throat> and then I think the only challenge of that is there's some jobs where that may not be a possibility. I don't know. Um, so, but, you know, if the daycare is closed, you got to hope that you're also off work. <laughs> Just think about that for parents. Uh, they There's some, uh, I saw a report that there's some school districts doing four days instead of five so that matches yeah. up with well if the school the districts do it then the the companies have to maneuver and make it work because you can't have people missing work because they don't have anywhere for their children to go That's just, yeah it doesn't make sense um i mentioned this a couple times in france workers have yet again taken to the street to protest raising their retirement age to 65 the last protest this weekend was nearly one million people. Oh, America, if you could just just see what is possible. <laughs> and that might still even pass. Macron might still be able to do raise that from 62 to 65. But the fact that people have made clear where they stand on the issue is remarkable. Uh, and then the last thing I'll announce or mention is that uh, tech companies are still considering additional layoffs Meta just announced that they are exploring yet one more round that could match the last one, and that one was about 11,000 people. So within a matter of, what, six months or so, they could lay off 22,000 people. It's pretty <laughs> remarkable. Which just naturally segues so easily into, could we be having a repeat of the 2007 and 8 financial crisis? I'm sure everyone has heard of Silicon Valley Bank by now. Silicon Valley Bank is in big trouble. What happened? Well, here's a quick explainer from Stephanie Rule. We're going to start with this. Let's just walk our audience through how this started. Okay. Silicon Valley Bank has been around forever, but it is the bank for startups, yep. right? It is the bank for all of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. 
During COVID, we saw a huge influx of investment into startups. Yep. This bank ballooned in the amount of deposits it had, almost 200 billion. They said, what are we going to do with it? They decided to invest in mortgage-backed securities when interest rates were super low. Right. So, of course, interest rates go up. Yep. The value of those securities plummet. Mm -hmm. So they say, oh, mm, we got a shortfall. What are we going to do? Right. And instead of privately figuring this out, they go out in the markets and they say, we're going to raise capital. And what does it do? Spooks the markets, spooks investors yep. right around the time when a crypto bank goes under. Right. And so, in fact, the irony is that the two aren't connected. They're not. Connected. But everybody on Twitter is telling me, see, this is what happens when you mess with crypto. Correct. And so horrible communication around this. Yep. You see investors, you see depositors pull their money yep. overnight, stock tanks and boom. Next yep. thing you know, run on the bank. Yep. The FDIC has taken it over. Okay, so what's the fallout? What will happen? So you've got companies, large and small, who have to figure out how to make payroll. They have money, right? They have the money, but the bank doesn't have the money. What does that look like? Take a listen to this South Park clip for a little bit of an explanation. Next, please. Go on, Stanley. I got a $100 check from my grandma. And my dad said I need to put it in the bank so it can grow over the years. Well, that's fantastic. A really smart decision, young man. We can put that check in a money market mutual fund. Then we'll reinvest the earnings into foreign currency accounts with compounding interest, and it's gone. <laughs> uh, what? It's gone. It's all gone. What's all gone? The money in your account, it didn't do too well, it's gone. What do you mean? I, I have $100. Not anymore, you don't. Poof. Well, well, what can I do to get back I'm my- I'm sorry, sir, but this line is for bank members only. I just opened an account. Do you have any money invested with this bank? No, you just lost it all. Then please stand aside for people who actually have money with us. Next, please. Hey! Hello, Mrs. Farnickel. How are you today? Making a deposit, are we? Great, we can just put that into your retirement account and make it go to work for you, and it's gone. What? Sorry, yeah, that's gone. Please step aside for people who actually have money with the bank. Next, please. Dad! <laughs> hey, I'm trying to teach my son the importance of savings. You already lost his money? Oh, Mr. Marsh, d don't worry. We can just transfer money from your account into a portfolio with your son, and it's gone! This line is for people who have money with the bank only. Please step aside. <laughs> So, um, here are the here are four big companies who have some of the largest deposits in Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Circle had three point three billion. Roku had four hundred and eighty seven million. BlockFi two hundred and twenty seven, and Roblox, which all the kids know about Roblox, one hundred and fifty million. Now, the FDIC insures up to $250,000, so anything above that is an IOU. Uh, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen went on TV Sunday, and she said she's working closely with the bank regulators to respond to the collapse and protect depositors, but she said they are not considering a major bailout. Very interesting. Now, the Treasury and the U.S. government generally is trying to avoid a run on the banks. Now, over the weekend, there were videos of people lined up outside of banks trying to get their money out. 
I think it was still a small amount, but the question is, we're taping Sunday. The question is, what happens this week? What happens Monday through Friday of this week? It's all a question of confidence right now. Am I confident that when I go to swipe my card, that it's going to work? That when I try to pay my employees, that the money will be there, the check will clear? Um, and the question is, what happens to smaller regional banks? And of course, because this is America, it will be politicized and it already is starting to be that way. Some Republicans, including, of course, Ron DeSantis, have said that Silicon Valley Bank failed because of, wait for it, their interest and in work around DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. That's why the bank failed. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> All right, y'all, on to party poopers and party starters. Yeah, her go around singing the party pooper song. Every party needs a pooper. That's why we invited you. Party pooper. <laughs> party pooper. This week's party pooper is Florida State Senator Jason Broadjor. I think I pronounced that right. So this joker introduced two bills that are straight out of an authoritarian country's playbook. One bill would require bloggers paid to write about the governor and other elected officials to file a monthly report with the state of Florida. That report requires them to list their post, how much they were paid to write it, and who paid them. And then if they miss filing a report, they could be fined up to $2,500 per infraction. The conservative version of the ACLU, this organization called FIRE, even they said this is crazy, and they called, quote, the bill is an affront to the First Amendment and our national commitment to freedom of the press. Another bill this guy introduced would assure that when a newspaper quotes, uh, would assume, rather, that when a newspaper quotes an anonymous source, that they are printing lies. So it is uh, a bill that, basically tries to stop newspapers from quoting anonymous sources. What the heck? All right, our party starter of the week, all episode long, I've been trying to think of who in the world could be the party starter. Um, I I don't know, Keith. I, I Part of me wants to say the solidarity of the Stop Cop City people. Even if you don't agree with their tactics and their approach, uh, the fact that they are incredibly organized, that they have gone to city council, that they have done a lot of work and research. I, mean, I didn't know that the Wolani tribe was there originally, right? They've just done a lot to help people better understand the situation and the narrative and have challenged the status quo around uh, the building of big infrastructure in the city, which typically what happens is the elite, wherever they might be, whether it's a corporation, whether it's an elected official or whoever says, hey, we want to do this, whether it's 
We want to build Mercedes-Benz Stadium, right? We want Georgia State to take over the property that Turner Field used to be. Like all these big projects, it's this is happening, get on the train or get ran over. Um, and I think there's a shift happening where people are saying like, hey, no, I'm not okay with it. And just because I'm not out protesting at the forest doesn't mean that I'm okay with it. That's also another distinction. Um, and so I'm not saying I agree with their every tactic um, at all, but I do think there's some lessons to be learned and um, some accountability to be had. All right, y'all, that is today's show. I failed to mention this, I think, but it's Women's History Month. So, man, I'm, I'm slacking on my duties. <laughs> so that's, happy. That's why she took the week off. Right, y'all. right. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> happy Women's History Month. Uh, show the women in your life some love. Give people their flowers while they are here. That is the show. As always, thank you for tuning in to Where the Party At, your favorite political podcast.